Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But you want to do something nice, you're a fan of the show, you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter at Snapshots In and on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History. I want to thank everyone for the great feedback I got on our last episode with Doug Heinzer and appreciate everyone being kind of open-minded about that. It's something I wanted to do that was a little bit different. I thought it'd be kind of neat to follow a first-time owner as he kind of digs into the season. So we're going to check in with Doug again, probably here in the next few weeks. And, you know, once we get through a month or two of the ECHL season and see how things are going with him and we'll get some updates throughout the year. But we're back with our regularly scheduled program, or I guess our regular format. And we have Brad Maxwell this week joining us from the Minnesota North Stars. For Brad's interview, we cover the 80-81 season, and we'll dig more into that in a minute. Before we get to our interview with Brad, though, want to give everyone a quick life update. We're three weeks into the current NHL season or something like that, and I have yet to watch an entire NHL game. I'm not kidding. I'd like to say it's that I haven't had a lot of time, and that is partially true, I guess. I've been doing a lot of interviews. If you follow us on social media, you saw that I had three interviews in this past week. But I also really haven't had the passion or the drive to watch the National Hockey League so far this year, and I'm not sure why. I don't think it's because I dislike the game or I love the olden days more than the new days. I think that neither one is better than the other. They're very, very different. I just really haven't gotten into it. I'm kind of going through this weird kind of lockout phase in my life where I haven't been watching the NHL. So I just thought I'd share that with everybody. Don't know why I felt the need to share it, but I just haven't been watching NHL hockey. With that said, I still love the game and I love doing these interviews. I think I mentioned on social media, I had three interviews in the past week. I got another one on Tuesday. Some great hockey stories. I love, love, love sharing this with you guys and I hope you guys enjoy them. And from the feedback I've gotten, it sounds like you guys do. And uh, one thing I did want to let everybody know, probably our most requested episode has been something with the Toronto Maple Leafs from the 80s. I have finally locked down a guest. We did the interview last week. It was a great interview. Lots of stories about Harold Ballard. I'll post that here probably in the next upcoming weeks. But in the meantime, wanted to post another team that we hadn't covered before, and that's the Minnesota North Stars. So was able to track down Brad Maxwell. And for those that don't know Brad, he was a defenseman in the National Hockey League throughout the 80s. I think his last season was like 87, 88. So he probably played about 10 years. And he was a Minnesota North Stars lifer. And I say that, and you guys are going to be like, Brett, do you not check Hockey DB? He played for a bunch of other teams. But when I think of Brad Maxwell, I think of the Minnesota North Stars. He started with them. He did leave towards the end of his career. I think over a two-year span, he played with Quebec, New York, a couple other teams. But he ended up going back and retiring with the Minnesota North Stars. And he's the current head of the North Stars Alumni Association, or now it's the Minnesota NHL Alumni Association. And they do a lot in the community and around Minnesota. And we talk about that towards the end of the interview. But some great classic stories in here about some real characters in hockey. Glenn Sumner, there's a crazy story about him wearing an eye patch as well as some other funny stories about Lou Nanny, which I'm sure if you're a Minnesota hockey fan, you will really enjoy. For this interview, we cover the 80-81 NHL playoff run that the Minnesota North Stars had. Spoiler alert, they make it all the way to the finals. So in this interview, we also talk about the Islanders, the Sabres, tons of good 80s hockey gossip. Everyone will enjoy this interview. I think uh, Brad's just an awesome dude and great to listen to. So we'll go ahead and cut to that interview, catch you on the flip side as we close things out. But for now, enjoy our interview with Brad Maxwell. So it seemed to me the 80-81 Minnesota North Star season was a bit of a roller coaster. It seemed like the sky was the limit the first 15 games. You guys got off to a great start. I only had two losses during that 15 games. And then December hit, and it seems things went good, and then they went bad, and it was just kind of up and down. But it seemed the team experienced a league leading 322 man games lost and it you know you yourself had a tough year it looks like man games lost you were even quoted in the minnesota star tribune saying it's not my year what the heck happened to you man what was going on that season 
I think I, I think it was just a knee or something, you know, and uh, so, you know, I had a right knee that was not very good. So, I mean, I think it was more just the right knee and uh, it just started off where it was, uh, you know, not a, not a good season. I mean, I just, you know, when you get hurt early and stuff like that and it's, you know, everybody wants to play, you don't want to be hurt. Sure, sure. And for you, it was definitely a difficult season, but, but how do you think the team performed overall during the regular season? I think they did. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of average. I mean, it wasn't any better than 1980. I mean, 80 was good. We ended up playing Montreal and stuff. But, you know, we were kind of just getting our way. You know, you got to look back. And when 1977, the North Stars were awful. I mean, 77, 78, we were not very good. We were like last place. And it's like, it wasn't a very good team. And then all of a sudden, we had the opportunity to uh, uh, merge with Cleveland. And Lou Nanny took this to a different level. He took two teams and made one. And it came out pretty good. As we get ready to roll into the playoffs, the team added two former NCAA stars, including former 1980 Miracle on Ice star Neil Broughton, as well as WCHA Freshman of the Year Kevin Maxwell. And Maxwell had spent the year in the minors. These guys were young rookies. I'm curious, what were your first impressions of them as players? Well... We were all young. I mean, you get Dino and you get uh, Kevin and, and Neil and stuff like that. I mean, they were just we were just a bunch of young kids. I think I was like 24 years old. And it's like, you know, we, we I don't know. It was just a thing. We were young and we were cocky and uh, we, we just took it from there. But, it, you know, I think it goes back to 81. The most definite thing about 81 is the last two weeks in the season we, we ended up playing in Boston. And you guys had previously had that brawl with Boston earlier in the year. That's the one I'm talking. That's the one I'm talking about. That was the one where we went in. The, there was uh, the last two weeks of the season. We went into Boston. The North Stars had never won in Boston in 14, 15 years, and so we just had a meeting. We sat down and we say, "Hey, Glenn Sonmer came up and said, I don't care if we win this game, but we are just we are not going to get beat up in this rink again." And uh, that's how the brawls turned into. I couldn't believe it. That brawl took place, as you said, in the final weeks of the season, February 24th. There were over 400 penalty minutes so before the game literally i mean if i'm not mistaken didn't the puck just drop and then somebody started fighting and it just throughout the game it was just multiple fights like that yeah if i remember it was bobby smith and steve casper well bobby smith six four steve casper is like five eight you know? so, <laughs> of course bobby's gonna jump the littlest guy on the team and so he takes and uh you know so that just got it started and it uh, it just went from there and it was just non-stop the whole night so did the Bruins and North Stars have that heated rivalry or was it one of these things where it was kind of a one-sided rivalry where the North Stars just couldn't stand the Bruins? I know Caps fans have had that with Penguins. I know other teams have had that. Was it like that? Well, it just that, you know, like teams go into Boston, teams go into Philadelphia and they just get beat up. You know, I mean, they, they just intimidate you and they just they beat you up. And it's like, you know, it's not that they're any better. It's just that that was the big bad Bruins. That was their whole forte about how they played the game. And, and it wasn't that they were any tougher or any better. It's so we just had to go in there and stand up because we'd been walked on so long. There had been so many games that we'd played Boston where it was just it was so lopsided that, you know, it was just like, I don't know, Muhammad Ali fighting a 10-year-old. <laughs> well, this, this game got a ton of press. And actually, two weeks later, legislation was introduced in front of Congress to talk about excessive force during pro sports games and it possibly being a federal crime. It was, I, for people that haven't seen this, I know it's available on YouTube. This really was the talk of the NHL, this game at that time, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, it just went around because it was the biggest. It was actually 680 or 90 minutes in penalties. <laughs> Unbelievable. In and it, it was just nonstop, all game long. We finished the – I finished the game. I had like two fights, finished the game. Uh, we finished with seven guys. So there was like seven guys on each team. You get back in the locker room afterwards. What's said? We were ecstatic. I mean, we just – we everybody stood up and showed up. And, you know, we had a good – chance at that time we were figuring that we might meet Boston in the playoffs and so that was one of the reasons why we did this was that you know just to set a a precedence that you know when it came you know if we did meet you in the first round of playoffs that you know this was going to take effect it came down to eighth and ninth place the St. Louis Blues ended up playing the North Stars you beat them six nothing and then you end up playing the Chicago Blackhawks and losing to them eight to four with that loss you don't guys don't get homeless advantage but you will play the Bruins in the first round and one thing that kind of surprised me was coach Glenn Sumner made a little bit of a surprise choice he decides to go with young 
rookie Don Beaupre, as opposed to the veteran Giles Malosh. I'm kind of curious, what did everybody think of, or, or before I ask that, what was the goaltending situation like on the team? Well, it was great. I mean, Donnie and Joe got along really good. They were best friends and they just, they worked all the time and they were just happy to see, you know, each other play well. And that was kind of the extent of it. And then when they put Donnie in, I mean, I think maybe it was just for, he's a little quicker than Jill. And so, I mean, I guess that was, you know, that was his total decision. You weren't kidding when you said that Minnesota had struggled in the Boston Garden. Zero, 28, and seven in the Boston Garden before this playoffs. <laughs> right. And in a game full of excitement, Steve Payne led the team with a hat trick after scoring his third goal in OT. Let's talk about that first playoff game. How magical of an evening was that for you guys? It was awesome. I mean, we were so pumped up to play, and we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if it was going to be Second World War or if it was just going to be a game. And it was so amazing because we went out there they were a totally different team. I mean, to play against, they just, they played. And there's no way they were going to beat us because they had some older guys that are kind of winding up their career and stuff. And we were just young and we were like full of pep. And it was like, it, there wasn't really much chance they were going to beat us. Now, I could be totally wrong when I say this. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But I read in the Star Tribune that head coach Glenn Sumner actually wore an eye patch during this game. Is that true? He probably did. I don't know. He did a lot of things. I mean, I got stories of him where he's, you know, the year before we were playing Montreal in the playoffs and we were at our bench at home in Minnesota and all of a sudden, you know, he has a glass eye. Well, the glass eye popped out on the floor when they were singing the national anthem and he's <laughs> he's down the he's down the end of the bench and he's asking, you know, it's on the defenseman side and he's, he's asking us to, you know, get down and they're singing the national anthem and we're down on the ground and we're trying to find his eyeball in the dark. And- <laughs> before they kneeled you guys would just get down and look for you know before they did that in the nfl you guys were doing it in the 70s in the nhl just looking for glass eyes it's no big deal right we weren't we weren't protesting anything we were just looking for the eyeball (laughs) of course you weren't of course you weren't so i guess he was a real superstitious guy what was he like as a coach though he was good. He was very motivated. I mean, he, he wasn't a Herb Brooks where he wasn't a tactician. He was a uh, he was just a motivator. You know, he'd come in and he'd just get you all pumped up to play. And, you know, which is really good because at the time, everybody, if you're playing in the NHL, you, you, you got some talent. I mean, that's why you're there. So but he just he just got everybody pumped up, ready to play. So evidently he wore this eye patch. And the reason he did it is he received a letter from a girl who said she was his psychic and she saw Sumner leading the North stars over the Bruins, but he was wearing an eye patch when he did it. So he actually wore one and I was just blown away by this. He sounds kind of like a little bit of an interesting guy. Oh, he, he was totally interesting. He's got more stories and uh, he did more things uh, in hockey than, than most people could even imagine. Game two was the following night at 635 and Sumner again went with Don Beaupre and this was a, a high scoring game. They sent the Bruins goalie Rogi Vachon to the showers early. The game saw 15 goals as the Stars won nine to six. You had a goal in this game where you shot it off the point. And one thing I noticed a lot from reading these articles, you had a lot of assists as a defenseman was the strategy just to put it on net and then try to have a forward catch the rebound or something like that pretty much i mean you know we just had a we had a deal like a guy like dino or neil or somebody like that or tom mccarthy i mean just had you know an idea when you were going to shoot it and then so they were just either getting in the way or trying to get in front there and uh i don't know it was just it was just kind of clicked. Everybody worked good. Craig Hartsburg was a phenomenal defenseman. I mean, he just, the way he played. And, and we just, I don't know, we were just solid. We just played good. And who were you typically at this point kind of splitting the blue line with? Who were you Who were you paired with? We, we never really had pairings. Really? Um, yeah, we, you know, we always, you know, Fred Barrett, I mean, uh, uh, Kurt Giles. I mean, we always just kind of, uh, uh, you know, it was like go when you go and you're with who you're with. And you, you were never really paired with anybody. After this game, Jack Carlson was quoted in the Star Tribune as saying, Glenn Sumner, Muzz Oliver, and JP warned us that the key to winning this game in Boston was to keep the puck away from Bork, Middleton, and McNabb. You guys definitely were able to shut them down. Was there anybody else on the Bruins, though, that you remember playing against and went, man, that guy, it was tough shutting that guy down? 
I mean, you had a, they had a lot. I mean, you had Rick Middleton and, uh, you know, uh, Don Marcotte. Uh, and, they, you know, there was a lot of guys that were, you know, Crowley. I mean, there, there was a lot of guys that were just really, really good players. And, you know, once they once they quit trying to intimidate us, you know, then they started to play and, and that made it a good game. After getting the day off to travel back to Minnesota, the North Stars stuck the screws to the Boston Bruins and eliminated the Gary Cheevers coach Bruins 3-0. The final score of the game was 6-3 to three with the Bruins went down fighting in a fight-filled third period. So back to what you talked about, their reputation. Did you kind of feel like once they realized they weren't going to win, they were going to send a message for next season? I, I think that was it. You know, they were just going to, you know, they got that, they got to a point where they just probably couldn't really believe that they were behind. And I think they got to a point is that, you know, that's just the way they would play if they played any other team is if they got down and they're, then they're going to get their, their hair up on the back of their neck and they're going to go for it. Do you have any idea, like, was there an incident that maybe sparked that brawl? And this was 30 years ago, so I don't expect you to remember everything. But do you, do you recall maybe what sparked it? The, the the first the big brawl oh no just this one uh this uh last one during this playoff game i i don't re- i don't remember yeah. that you know that anything that uh you know how that would have started or anything it probably started with dino because he was the biggest <laughs> disturber that you get to ever so he probably did something bad and you know then we had to kind of come to his defense dino cicerelli would later say it was due to the trainer spitting on him so you pretty much nailed it when you said it was due to dino and i gotta ask he'd come up during the season as a rookie what were your initial impressions of him as a young guy did you guys know that he had that kind of talent no, I mean, he was small. I mean, he was just little and small, but he just, you know, once he got up, but he was so feisty and stuff that he could play and he could shoot. I mean, he really could shoot. And, you know, nobody really knew that, you know, we knew he'd scored a lot of goals in junior. And uh, so we, we just didn't, we didn't know where he'd go with it, but he just kind of dug in, but he was, he was so feisty and he just, he, he had no problem in getting the other team all upset with him. So. In addition to Steve Payne, Dino Cicerelli, another store North Star that stuck out was Tim Young, who had a goal and six assists during this series. And I've never really heard of Tim. I'm not really familiar with him. Can you share anything about him with us? He was pr- probably the most talented player I played with. Really? I mean, but he didn't want to be good. I mean, he, he didn't want to be an all-star. He just wanted to play. And, you know, he could have at any time if he had just exerted himself a little more than he did. But the talent, uh, you know, he could kick pucks up off his skates. He'd knock them down out of the air. And he just, he had, he just, raw talent was just unbelievable. And evidently, GM Lou Nanny had to fight to keep him throughout the, his tenure there. People actually said to trade this guy. So um, I'm kind of curious, you know, G- GM Lou Nanny, I've heard good things about him. What were your experiences with him like? Well, uh, when I first came in, when I was 19, he was 36. And so he was my roommate because they put the youngest with the oldest. And so I learned a lot of bad things from him, uh, <laughs> being on the road and stuff. So, you know, like not doing curfew. I could get into like some stories with him, but it, we could be here all day. But uh, but so then he takes over uh, halfway through the year. He's the coach. And then pretty soon he's the coach general manager. And then he's just general manager. So, but. Louis was a, he's a smart hockey guy, knows the game and stuff like that, but uh, he's, he's quite a character. With Lou Nanny becoming the GM, and, and he was your roommate at one time, was it ever hard playing for him as he kind of moved up through the organization? Because he, he's no longer a peer. No, he actually took his, uh, well, I'll tell, okay, I'll tell you this story. We're in, uh, we were in Los Angeles when he was playing. This is before he became coach and GM. And uh, he was my roommate. And all of a sudden, so Andre Ballou, our coach, he calls, we lose badly to Marcel Dion and, uh, in uh, Los Angeles. So he ends up calling an 11 o'clock curfew in, in Los Angeles. So, which is always, everybody's always looking to go to LA because it's so was, nice out there. I was going to say, it doesn't start until 11 o'clock in Los Angeles. You're, I know. So he calls 11 o'clock curfew. So I'm in my room and all of a sudden Lou comes in and he's out somewhere and he comes in. He goes, he says, come on, let's go eat. And I go, well, we have curfew. He goes, oh, don't worry about that. So all of a sudden we take his, uh, we go out, we have dinner and everything. And all of a sudden Lou loves to eat. I mean, he ordered everything on the menu. And then finally he goes, the bill comes and he hands it to me and he goes, thanks a lot, kid. (laughs) So anyways, about a couple weeks later, he becomes coach and GM and and we ended up going to play a game in New York. And I came in, I was like 15 minutes late because there was a curfew in New York. <coughs> Louis says to me, you're fined $500. For, 
And I go, for what? He goes, for missing curfew. He goes, you tell me not to respect curfew. He goes, that was me, not you. <laughs> so not only did he stick you with dinner, he also then fined you $500 for that. Right. I, I tell you, it was, this is the original rookie dinner. I mean, he finally, you know, he, he's the one that started this pretty much, where the rookie had to take out the veterans. Sure. <laughs> That's it. On Tuesday, April 14th, the North Stars find out that they'll be playing against the Buffalo Sabres in the next round. The Sabres were coming off a first round series where they swept the Canucks in three games and looked like a team that was very different from the Boston Bruins. Let's talk about the Buffalo Sabres of this era. What can you, what, what comes to mind when you think of the Sabres from the early 80s? Well, they had a, they were a big team. Uh, you know, they had uh, uh, Korab on defense. And then uh, I think at the time, Robert and Martin were still there. Uh, but if I'm thinking right. But uh, anyway, but they were just a good team. Phil Housley was there on defense. Um, they were just a, a good team, a good big team and stuff like that. But they weren't a physical team. They weren't. They didn't want to battle you like the Bruins did. They just wanted to play. And, and it was just... You know, Brett, we got on a roll because it, it was for the team that we had, a bunch of young guys, we just knew our jobs. If you were a goal scorer, you scored goals. If you were a goalie, you stopped the puck. If you were a defenseman, you played defense. So everybody knew their job and everything just clicked for us at that time. And it, it just came about at the right time going into playoffs. And it, that's kind of just got us through most of these series. Game one clicked just like you said it was, and you contributed. Al McAdam fed you the puck on the point where you ripped a shot, and Steve Payne scored the goal. You guys ended up winning 4-3 to three in overtime. This one also had U.S. Olympian Miracle on Ice squad member Mike Ramsey. So we've got Broughton. We've got Ramsey playing in this. I'm kind of curious, going back, and I'm an American. I was born actually in 84, so this was before my time. We always hear about how big the Miracle on Ice was. In the league, though, amongst players, was it that big of a deal? I mean, I know you're not an American, so I wouldn't think from a a fan perspective it would be for you but was it a big thing amongst players in the league because i feel like it was constantly brought up this guy played on the miracle on ice team i think it was you know that kind of dictated that kind of brought the americans into the game i think because at that time right before that the league was majority canadians mm -hmm. and you know like and then those are the rules back there was you could have two europeans on each team uh but that you only could have two so but the majority of the game for all the teams that were in the NHL were basically Canadians. And then in once 1980 came along and the Miracle on Ice came in and all these players started to come in, then I think uh, teams started to look at, say, geez, Americans are, have good hockey players. And so they started recruiting Americans. People talk about how the Gretzky effect on California. Do you think maybe the Miracle on Ice kind of almost set that up? Because it sounds like from everything I've heard from talking to you and talking to other players, that really hockey in America was, wasn't really a thing. I mean, you had Minnesota and you had Massachusetts and that was it. Yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it, w it was different. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I can remember looking back in those years and you looked at the St. Louis Blues and it's just, it's all guys I played junior against, uh, you know, Fedoric and, and uh, all the players that they had playing in St. Louis. I mean, it was just a mass number of Western Canadian hockey players. Back to your schedule or back to your series, excuse me. Game two was scheduled for the next night in Buffalo. I know now the theory is most teams have a day between games. And really with TV now, you can almost have two days between games. You guys were playing every other night and you weren't staying in these nice hotels. How was your body holding up during this playoff run? We were good. I mean, I, I was good. I worked really hard because I was hurt early in the year. So, and I worked really hard to get back for playoffs in the last part of the season. And, uh, you know, it just, I, I felt really good. And, and, uh, I think all the, all the guys in the team, we were just, we were pretty healthy. We didn't have a lot of injuries in the playoffs. Your body definitely must've been in good shape because you used it effectively in the North stars, five to two triumph over the Buffalo Sabres. And during this game, you threw a hit on current Rangers assistant coach, Lindy Ruff, which would send him to the locker room. Steve Kristoff was able to break out a bit of a slump and score two goals. Dino Cicerelli scored two and Bobby Smith rounded out the scoring for the stars. Bobby was a hell of a goal scorer. And one of these guys you really don't hear a lot about anymore. He had nearly 350 goals. And I, I, I'm just curious, you played with him. Does a guy, does he have a spot in the Hockey Hall of Fame? 
I would think so. I mean, I think he was just a very talented player. I mean, he was talented in junior, and, and he had a he had a great NHL career. Um, you know, it's it's always unfortunate that you know you get traded, and when Lou traded him to Montreal, and I think he he did that trying to ha- get Bobby to win a cup. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that's kind of like I, I you know I think that was done for that reason. But no, Bobby was a great hockey player, and and you know he de- he deserves that. Going back a little bit to the hit on Lindy Ruff, and I'm sure you threw thousands of, actually, I don't, I'm not sure. I know you threw thousands of hits in your career. What would you look for when a player was coming down? How would you line them up? What was your body positioning in order to throw a hit? What did you look for? Well, you kind of you're looking at the upper body. I mean, you're looking at the chest uh, to the head, um, but mainly the the chest, the upper body. If you, if you're looking down, you're going to get beat. Uh, I one time I remember when I first came in my first or second year I was playing. We were playing Pittsburgh, and Mario Lemieux was playing. And he came down on me, and he put the puck under my stick, and I was trying to play the puck, and then he put it under the other way, and then he put it on the other way, and went around me, and went in and scored on the lock. <laughs> so I I kind of tucked my head down, and I kind of stumbled over to the bench, but. Um, um, no, it was just uh, you kind of just trying to you know when you're when you're trying to check somebody you're just you're looking at the body and you're just you're you're not looking at the puck you're just playing the person. Game three in Minnesota was another outstanding performance at the Met Center for the North Stars. This time the score was six to four in favor of the North Stars. Stellar performances were performed by several of the young guns, including Neil Broughton and Kevin Maxwell. This team had so much young talent, and you even said that throughout the interview. But let's talk about some of the older guys. What was the leadership like in the locker room? Was there anybody, uh, any veterans that you were relying on to kind of guide the ship, so to speak? Well, you had Fred Baird and stuff. I mean, he's probably been around, you know, the longest of anybody. Uh, but he, he just, he gave great leadership and stuff. And everybody liked Freddie and stuff. And Joe Malash, the goalie, was, you know, he was, Joe was a little bit older and stuff. But they were just, you know, good guys. I mean, we just had a, a good group of guys uh, that we could, you know, associate with. And, uh, you know, we had some good mentors. It sounds like this crew was also close off the ice. Is that safe to say? Yes, very much. Did did I know I've talked to players before where there was on certain teams where guys all kind of lived in a neighborhood. Was this a setup like that where, you know, some of the young guys all had an apartment in a certain apartment building or anything like that? Well, no, we just kind of lived, you know, in back in those days and stuff like that. Minneapolis was a little smaller than it is now, but it was, you know, just areas that we had that there was a lot of guys. You could have five or six guys living in Burnsville, Minnesota. You could have, you know, a few that lived a few miles away. So it was it was pretty close, pretty tight group. And who were some of the guys you were closest with off the ice? Um, I just had a lot of guys, Jack sure. Carlson and Tim Young and I were really good friends. And Glenn always used to call us the big three because we were always hanging out together. And then sometimes he would say, you guys can't hang out together. And so, but no, we had a good, we, we had a lot of fun. I've always wondered this with Jack Carlson. Do you think he ever regretted from what I understand? He was slotted to be in that slap shot movie and he got recalled to the playoffs and didn't, uh, I believe in the WHA and didn't end up being in the movie. Do you think he ever regretted that? Did that ever bother him? He, he won't tell you that, but I think probably deep down in it kind of does a little bit, you know, but, but I think that he, uh, you know, he, he'd made the decision to where he wanted to go at that time and he just lives with it. Coach Glenn Sumner after this game was quoted as saying in the Star Tribune, when things are going good for you, sometimes everything's going good for you. Sounds like you guys are having a great time off the ice in your career, which was, you know, God, you played for so long. Would you rank this as one of the highlights of your career, this playoff run? Oh, no doubt. I mean, it was just, uh, it, it was a high, you know, we were just cruising along and uh, we were we were just playing the game. And it was like, you know, after, uh, you know, I know you want to, you'll get there and stuff. When we get after, actually by Buffalo, you'll get to Calgary. And it's like, it just, it was, we were just cruising. We were on a roll. There was only one bright spot in this series for the Buffalo Sabres, and that was game four. They're able to squeeze out a win on a Craig Ramsey goal in overtime. But just a few days later, you guys up and the Sabres. And as you said, you get into Calgary to go ahead and play the Flames, who had just come off a long series against the Philadelphia Flyers. What was the reputation of the Calgary Flames at this point? Well, we just knew they were a good team. They were a big team. You know, they had really big guys and stuff. So it was, uh, it, it you know, and we we weren't the biggest team. You know, we had a lot of Dino and Kevin Maxwell and uh, Neil Broughton weren't the tallest guys on the ice. And so, you know, we're, and then you go in there and they've got Willie Platt and they've got big guys playing. And it was just, uh, it, it was, it was different, but we just, uh, you know, we worked hard and, and, 
came out ahead. It sounded like getting to Calgary was a battle in itself. And I don't know if this will bring back memories or not, but after several mix-ups with the hotels, the team finally was able to secure rooms nearly 60 minutes outside of Calgary, which meant the team had to be shuffled in. What do you recall about all that? We took is when we, I think that actually really that the North Stars management did not think we were going to beat Buffalo. (laughs) And so they never made reservations for us. You know, when we were getting close to the end and stuff, they, nobody ever thought of, Oh God, we got to make reservations at the next city we're going to. So in Calgary is such a, you know, big city. It's got so much corporate business and stuff like that. So we, we have no hotel. So we're trying to figure, they finally figure out that we're going to go stay in Banff. (laughs) It's a hundred 122 miles out of Calgary, but so we ended up going to Banff and we stayed in the old hotel in Banff and we had such a blast. I mean, it was so much fun because just the stories and the nostalgia of that. I mean, we had, we had the young guys so scared because we were telling stories and they had people that were coming in and we'd sit in the lobby and they had these people that would come in and they'd tell us old stories about what happened in this hotel years and years, a hundred years ago. And so then we started going, sneaking into the young guy's room and getting underneath their bed and then doing all this, you know, we, you know, cause we had a lot of pranksters. Oh my so gosh. Doing stuff to the young guys and stuff. And we, we had them so scared some nights they didn't even want to go to bed. So I'm going to ask you two questions and I'm not asking you to spill the beans or rat anybody out. But who were the biggest pranksters and who got messed with the most? Well, I think, you know, you always picked on the young guys. Sure. So, it, so it was Neil and it was Dino and it was like Kristoff. And, and those guys were, you know, getting picked on pretty regularly. But, you know, a guy like Fred Barrett, I mean, he'd been around a long time. He'd seen a lot of stuff. And uh, so he, he was probably the, the baddest of us all. Is there anything that sticks out to you that is an innocent prank that you could share? Something fun that won't get anybody in trouble all these years later? Well, there was something, if I try to get this, if I can remember this right, it's been a long, it's been a while. Yes. But I know that somehow there was a story that this person in the lobby was telling us about that somebody would, they would call for room service out of their room. This lady called years and years ago. She called for room service. Then all of a sudden, so room service answers and she gives her order. And all of a sudden, as soon as she hangs up the phone, there's a knock on her door. And it it must have been like about a minute and a half since she ordered. And all of a sudden, there's a guy standing at the door with a tray full of food. And he goes, "I I have your order for you. And she goes, well, I just ordered a minute and a half ago. So all of a sudden, somehow the guy came in, dropped the tray, and when the lady walked him back to the door and gave him a tip, she turned around and came back in. There was no tray. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how that went, but it was something like that. But it was just so all these we had all these young guys listen to these stories, and then they, like the time we were going in and we were you know putting things in their bed and under their sheets, and you know so it, it was a lot of fun. The tough travel didn't matter. It doesn't matter no. at all because the North Stars matter. pull out game one, but lose game two, uh, making the series 1-1. But in reviewing the attendance numbers, it looks like there were under 8,000 people in attendance in Calgary. I mean, was this barn really small? What was the where the Calgary arena like? Well, it was old. They call it, I think they call it the corral. <laughs> it was kind of a little affiliated with the... Uh, when they have rodeos and stuff in the summer. So it wasn't the big saddle dome. It was, it was, I think it was called like the corral. It didn't really seat that many people. So it was a smaller arena. And, and after game one, Al McNeil, the coach of the Calgary Flames, came out and said something that kind of surprised me. He said the Flames lost due to mistakes they made as opposed to the North Stars being the better team. And I'm curious your thoughts on this because throughout this year, it seemed like the North Stars were the underdogs. Did, did you guys have a feeling that people weren't giving you guys the respect that you deserved? They did. I mean, and we felt that too, is we felt everywhere we went that, you know, nobody believed that we were going to win. Nobody thought we'd beat Boston. Nobody thought we'd beat Buffalo. And it was just a, uh, we just kept plugging away. We believed in ourselves and we went out and worked hard and we had a lot of talent. We had a lot of guys that could score goals. And I always believe that if you're playing in the playoffs, you got to score goals to win. During game three, you guys score goals led by the kid line as well as Bobby Smith. And we've talked a lot about goal scoring, but let's talk about the defense a little bit. You were back there as well. What kind of defense strategy or system do you recall that was used with the North Stars around this era? 
it was just basically Glenn always said, just get it up to the forwards as fast as you can. So we go back in our our own zone and, and just work it out of there and just but try to get it up in that we were a lot better in the offensive zone than we were in the defensive zone. So it was basically a matter of let let's play in their end. And that was kind of the theory. Game three was back at the Met Center as well as game four. Chance of Dino, Dino, Dino filled the Met Center. He scored a hat trick, propelling the team to a seven to four win in game four. Rookies scored five of the seven North Stars goals during this game. After the game, your teammate Craig Hartsburg was quoted as saying it was nice to sit back and watch the kids do it. That's what we pay him for, right? Hartsburg, of course, was only 21 at the time. I can't believe he's talking about kids. We've talked about how many young guys there were on this team. You'd been in the league for a few years at this point. I think you were probably 24 around this time. Was there anybody you grabbed a hold of and kind of took under your wing? I don't know. I mean, I I always just try to lead by example to to all. I mean, and it's just, you know, how you work in practice and how you show up for that, uh, you know, practices that you're you know you're early you're not just showing up and putting the gear on going out there going through the motions so as i don't know i just kind of you know kind of tried to lead by example and, and kind of fit in wherever i thought i could i noticed that bon, don Beaupre started in this game and, and sumner went back and forth between the goalies which kind of surprised me because usually i think when i see a playoff team you have one goalie that kind of runs and then you have your backup what was the thought process or do you recall it sounds like everybody felt comfortable with both goalies so well, definitely, we felt comfortable, and I don't know if Glenn and Donnie and Jill Malosh were uh, flipping a coin. I mean, I, I have no idea how they came up with, uh, you know, who's who's going to play and who's not. Before Game Five in the Calgary start, the Tribune had a nice piece on twenty-nine-year-old Eric or Kent Eric Anderson, who was considered a stabilizing factor. Not familiar with him as a player. What do you remember about him as a teammate? Well, he came in uh, Pierre Olive Brassar, and Kent came in my first year in 77 and they were both from Sweden uh they're just Kent was just a talented player I mean he could skate and he could shoot and he and he just he was so quiet he was like quiet as a mouse and you know, both both of them were they never ever said a word other than to each other but they were just you know they were fun to be around they were good hard-working guys game five wouldn't go the stars way which gave the opportunity for the north stars to wrap it up at home which they did on the back of Brad Palmer who scored two goals in the five to three win which means for the first time in club history the Minnesota North Stars are going to the Stanley Cup Finals. Before we get into this final series, though, how did the city react to having their team make it to the finals? It, it was just chaotic here. You know, the games that we'd played in the playoffs, the Boston, the Buffalo, the Calgary games, it was so loud at Met Center that if a teammate was standing two to three feet away from me, they, they couldn't hear what you're saying. I mean, it was just deafening because the old Met Center had a flat top roof. So what happened is all the sound, I mean, this place is just packed. I mean, there's people standing everywhere. Uh, but it was so loud in there. It was just, it was deafening. I mean, it was just like such a excitement and, a, you know, the guys were coming out on the ice for, you know, start the game and they were like, they were going a hundred miles an hour out the door. One kind of sad note was that Paul Schmier, the 33-year-old team captain, hadn't really got a lot of playing time during the series and had actually come out in the papers and talked about that and let people know that he wasn't happy with his playing time. Was that a distraction for you guys at all? Do you think it was a tough time for him given that this really this team had transformed into a younger, fast, quicker team and he was kind of a little bit on the older side in that older generation? Well, Paul was a great leader. I mean, he was a really good team guy, and, and he was always there for every player. I just think that he, he he was getting towards the end of the career, and I think he just wanted to participate as much as he could. So maybe he was a little bit, you know, not happy with, uh, you know, playing where he, he wanted to be out there to play. But, you know, it, it's, you know, you really get to that point. It's it's your coaches and your general manager. I mean, those are the, those are the people that, you know, have to put the guys on the ice. And I think that's very fair for him to feel that way. Here he's played this long time there's this exciting run and he wants to be a part of it like everybody else so i think that makes complete sense no doubt the star tribune compared this to david versus goliath it was the young north stars versus the grizzled stanley cup vets the new york islanders how did the team feel going into this matchup how did you feel i mean let's talk about you as an individual you've worked your whole life you've made it to the stanley cup finals and and you're going to play against the islanders what was going through your head can you take us back 
Well, I don't think it really hit any of us. I mean, because we didn't play the Islanders that much during a regular season. So, we, you know, we knew who they are. We knew how good they were. But I don't think any of us really knew how good they were until we started playing the game. Uh, and we're sitting on the bench and we're, we ended up more like we were more spectators than we were players because mm-hmm. we're sitting watching Trust Jay and Bossy and Potvin. And it's like, it's just, it, they were just so good and everything they did, they were just polished. So we go ahead and we get to game one. It's played on May 13th. And Brad, what happened? The team had a disappointing six to three loss. Were their nerves? Was it overwhelming? Were they so fast? What happened? I think like we were just sitting there watching. I mean, we were, we're just watching them play. And, you know, you get a shift, you go out and you play and you do the best you can. I'm not sure if that's the game. I can't remember which game it was, but uh, there was an incident with Bobby Bourne and I. Bobby Bourne kind of speared me. And then we kind of had dropped the gloves and fight. Well, he gets an extra five-minute uh, major penalty. So we have a power play of five on four for five minutes. Uh, they score twice. We score zero. Yeah, it just and they're on the short. They had so much talent. Oh, it was just you know, uh, yeah, it just you know from their defense and you know we barely got shots on goal. I mean, it was like they were just so uh, so good defensively. Dave Langevin, Potvin. I mean, it just you keep going. They just had so many guys. Game two was the same score, but it sounded like the second game was different from the first. Head coach Glenn Sumner was quoted after the game saying, "We fought back from a three to one deficit to tie the game and take control." I thought once. The game was tied, though. The Islanders roared back with goals from Dennis Potvin, Ken Morrow, and Mike Bossy. You're a defenseman in the league at this time, and it seems like this was the wide-open era. Lots of passing. You've talked about how how talented these guys are. How do you defend against them? What do you try to do? Well, you're just trying to play one-on-one. It's kind of like man-on-man. I mean, it's like playing basketball. I mean, you just, you know, make sure that your guy that's coming down on you doesn't beat you. And But it's just the way they played. They would just dump it off to somebody else. I mean, and Trache and Bossy and Gillies, I mean, they were just, they were such a good line. But then they were just solid all the way through. All, all, all their four lines were just, you know, they had the right idea. I mean, the big guys, the Bossy, the Trache, they scored goals. And then everybody else just played really good defense. Mike Bossy was an incredible player and eventually went into the Hockey Hall of Fame. His career ended at 31 years old due to injury, and he still scored close to 600 goals. I've heard that Gretzky, or I haven't heard, but everyone says Gretzky's the best of all time. Mario Lemieux's right up there. You played against him. Would you put Bossy up there with those guys? And do you think his career would have gone further had he gotten another five or six years? Yeah, I mean, probably would. I mean, I people have always asked me, who do you think the best player in the league that when you played? And I say it was Brian Trotche. Really? Yeah, I mean, he did it all. He could check, he could skate, he could score, he could he he had the whole game. I mean, he was just as a solid player, you know, all around player. I mean, I, I played a little physical, so I like the physical guys, but he, I think Trotche had uh, he had it all. And where if you look at uh, Lemieux and Gretzky, I mean, yeah, they were just great scorers, but they're not going to hit you. And do you think Trottier made everybody around him better? Was he one of those type guys? Because you look at Bossy, he scored over 600 goals. And I'm not taking anything away from his talent when I ask this. Do you think he could have done that without Trottier? Hard to say. I mean, that's, you know, it always depends. And, you know, I, I go back and I look at, you know, the draft years when you're drafted. I mean, Bossy was drafted in, in my year. He was drafted in 77. He went to the Islanders. What happens is sometimes when you're a really top draft pick, when you're like in my year, it was like Barry Beck and um, Dale McCourt. And um, so what happens is sometimes you get on the worst teams. Mm-hmm. For sure. So. What happened is Bossy comes in. Maybe Bossy wouldn't have scored 600 goals if he was playing for the Minnesota North Stars. But if, you know, if he had been drafted in the first five or six guys that year, but he was drafted like 23rd overall, somewhere in there. So he was later on. So he ended up going to a Stanley Cup team. He was drafted to a Stanley Cup team. 
You know, I'd never thought of that. You look at certain players that end up going first overall and they go to an expansion team or they go to a last place team. And I guess for a guy like Mario Lemieux, that shows just how talented he is. Despite going to a last place team or Sidney Crosby, he's able to turn that around. But you're right. Mike Bossy went to an established team and there have been several other players that went first overall that that kind of went to that team. So I'd never thought of that. That's an interesting take on that. Yeah, it's it's it kind of you know it's a different thing because I know when I first came in my first year, you know we had a there was like six or seven guys that were thirty four to thirty six years old that were they were just about maybe had one more year and they were done. <laughs> Never ever ever looked at it that way. That was interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. So we're gonna head back to Minnesota for games three and four. You guys are beaten the first two games and it was kind of lopsided. What's What's Coach Sumner say to you guys to try to keep you guys motivated? How is the team feeling? Well, I think the thing is, is that, you know, after going in there and getting beat the way that we got beat in there, uh, we just said we got to play better. And I think the thing is, is that there was definitely some things we we needed to do. We needed to move the puck out of our zone and, and not have any giveaways and stuff so is we had to change a little bit and i don't know if we got to where we really wanted to where we needed to be we returned back to minnesota for three and four this time gilles Maloc returned back to the net after game three after sumner gave don beaupre the start in game two game three was much of the same however the score was seven to five so it, it seemed like there was some high scoring and it, it, it you guys were not having trouble putting pucks in the net. And I ask you as, as a defenseman, was what, do you think the defense was just having trouble shutting down the Islanders? I mean, we've talked about how talented they were. They were stacked. Yeah, they just they played a different game. I mean, they were just, uh, like I said, we go, you go back to the word polished. I mean, they were just, they'd played together so long and they'd had such great success. They knew how to win. And they knew they could adjust in the game. So they would be at one, you know, doing one thing one time. Maybe they'd be one man four checking, and then all of a sudden they just blitz you, you know. So they had a whole different uh, array of four checking, and uh, their defense. I mean, once again, they were they were just big and they were solid and good. So at this point, it's zero and three. Things aren't looking good. But I want to focus on a couple positives. You're in Minnesota. You just wrapped up your first home game of the Stanley Cup Finals. Something you had worked towards your whole life. Did you get to experience this? with anybody did your family come in town or anything well i think i think my brother i think my sister uh my sister was married to rick lapointe oh <laughs> small world yeah so i mean rick played in he was a first round pick to detroit back in 75 and then uh he went to philadelphia st louis and then quebec for a little bit so um and yeah but he just so we kind of i think she came in for it my brother came in so yeah it was it was just uh it was a lot of fun is, you know, at that time, the whole city was just, you know, everything was North stars, everything you got, Dino, you got Dino dinosaurs. I mean, they were hanging everywhere. Wait, wait, wait a second. What is a Dino dinosaur? <laughs> well, you know, have you ever seen the Sinclair gas stations? You ever heard of those? I think so. I possibly I'm, I'm, I'm on the East coast. So I'm not a Midwest guy. Right. So their, their logo is a, is a dinosaur. It's a, it's a green, I don't, I'm not a dinosaur guru, but it's the one with the big long neck, you know? And it's like, so that's Sinclair's gas station. Well, they had one blow up ones. I mean, they had them everywhere. I mean, they, cause they used to put them out in the corners of these gas stations as advertisement. Well, I don't know how people found them, but pretty soon on like every corner in Bloomington had a Dino dinosaur up sticking up. So the Florida Panthers had the rats. You guys had the right. Dino dinosaurs with the Minnesota North Stars. I love it. I love it. I, yeah. We, we got to bring it back for Dino. Right. We go into game four and it's 0-3. And, and, and you know, everybody says we're never going to give up. We're never going to give up. Was there any seed of doubt going into game four? No, I just think that we just knew it was a game we had to win. And uh, so it was just, you know, come out, play hard, move the puck. And, and you know, we tried to change a few. Every game that, you know, when we were losing – uh, and we started over, we tried to change a few things uh, just to change the play a little bit and do something different. End up whatever you changed for game four worked as you guys end up winning four to two. And, and I guess let's talk about it. What did you change? What worked during this game? I, I think we just worked really hard and we got the puck out of our own zone. I mean, it's like um, they're just so good offensively that we just had to look, put a lot of pressure on. We had to shoot a lot. I mean, you had Brad Palmer and Ken Solheim. I mean, these guys could shoot the puck through the net, which they actually did. But they uh, they just, you know, we just had to have them shooting. And, uh, um, you know, so man, we just we were fortunate enough that we, we got that one. 
Game five, however, would mark the end of the Minnesota North Stars magical run. I mean, the North Stars end up losing five to one. And I'm sure it's still even difficult to talk about all these years later. But how did the team react after the loss? What, you know, for you, in your mind, what were your thoughts on the season and the series? Well, I think we were disappointed. We were, you know, nobody thought we were even going to do what we did. And I think that, you know, all the players, and when we were disappointed that we we didn't play better in the Islander series, we didn't win more games. And, and uh, But I think the thing is, is that there's always next year. And, you know, we were happy that, you know, we were just kind of establishing our team. In 1980, uh, you know, we ended up beating Montreal. And then it was like this year, so in 81, now we get to the Islanders. And so um, we just had to, you know, keep going along and, and improving. And keep progressing. And I'm curious, you know, when the team wins, you hear about them hanging out with the Stanley Cup. What happens when a team loses in the Stanley Cup finals? Well, you don't get the Stanley Cup. <laughs> no, no, I know that. But, <laughs> but is it depressing or is there still a celebration of look how far we've come? Well, I think between the guys and stuff, you know, we, we, you know, we were patting each other on the back and we were shaking hands and, and, uh, you know, everybody was, you know, pretty upset. I mean, nobody, you know, you don't like to lose at anything, but it's, uh, it was like, we still were, you know, together as a team and, uh, we just had to look forward to, you know, the, the next season coming. It reminds me, Brad Marsh was telling me that when the Flyers lost, everybody got on the plane, they went home and they went to a bar together and they sat and listened to a band. They were still excited and they were happy, but there was that little seed of disappointment as we still didn't get it. Right. You know, and then that's, that's, that was there too, is that, you know, we did, you know, stay together and, uh, you know, we did hang out together and it was just, but it was disappointing. Butch Goring won the Conn Smythe trophy. And I'm curious if you had to pick a player from the North stars to be the MVP during this run, who would you have picked? God, I don't know. Steve Payne, Al McAdam, they were both really good. It was a magical year for the North Stars. And, and now that we're kind of wrapping this up, I got to ask, what are you up to now, man? Please, uh, please let everybody know what you're doing. I know you're doing a lot of work with the Minnesota uh, Alumni Association. It's not the North Stars Alumni Association anymore. Right. I'm, I'm president of the Minnesota NHL Alumni, and uh, we do a lot of charity work here. Um, we play, we, we purchase AEDs, defibrillators that we've given out over a hundred thousand dollars in defibrillators to, uh, to hockey associations around the state of Minnesota. Um, and it's just a way for us to give back. Uh, we play charity games, uh, trying to raise money for all, uh, hockey organizations around Minnesota. And, uh, we just have a good group of guys and it, it's, it, they're not all players that played for the North Stars or played for the Minnesota Wild they they were just they were guys that played in the NHL but they live in Minnesota so they they belong to our alumni oh that's awesome that's awesome and if people want to donate to the cause I mean it, it's incredible you guys have put AEDs and rinks all over uh, I was reading about Minnesota where can they donate where can they find out more information do you guys have a mailing list with the upcoming games or anything like that yeah, just go to the Minnesota NHL alumni website and uh, you can find out everything that we're doing. It's posted on there. Thank you, Brad, once again for stopping by. It's always fun to hear these older stories. And this was something that even took place before I was alive. So, But I know who Dino Cicerelli is. I know who Lou Nanny is. I know about the Miracle on Ice. So it's still fun for me to hear all these stories. And Brad is an awesome dude. And I definitely want to have him back on the podcast. And he's doing some great stuff up in the Minnesota community. So if you are up there, uh, check him out. They're playing it. They put on tons of alumni games, which I love going to those things. Uh, they're free. They're cheap. Well, most of the time they're free. I don't know if his are. I shouldn't probably say that. Um, he's probably going to kill me. But anyway. Anyways, thank you, Brad, for joining us. And that's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. We'll be back with more hockey highlights next week. In the meantime, if you're bored, if you want to get more hockey fixed, don't forget all of our episodes are available for free in our archives at snapshotsinhockeyhistory.com and on iTunes at Snapshots in Hockey History. Please, please, please. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast if you like what you hear. If you don't like it, you don't have to leave anything, really. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We, we'll be okay without it. But please do follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History, on Facebook, and on Snapshots in on Twitter. Have a great week. Hopefully, I maybe will watch some NHL hockey this week. Who knows, really, with what my schedule looks like and uh, all that. So, yeah, talk to you soon. Have a great week.